Thursday, February 2nd, 2017. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Polk Runyon, and tonight we present our interpreted and explained version of the chemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz, 1614. The chemical wedding is the third of the mysterious Rosicrucian documents that appeared in Central Europe in the early 17th century. It is an alchemical fantasy that might even be called science fiction. Occultists have tried to unravel its secrets for the last 400 years, and we will offer our interpretation tonight as we accompany old Christian Rosencruz on his visit to the mysterious castle and his participation in the alchemical operation to resurrect the king and the queen. Now, the solving of his riddles has been just as exciting an adventure for us as the story itself. So, tune in and come with us to the castle of the Rosicrucians. Now, we did an earlier show on this uh, back in, uh, in uh, 2014. Uh, it was in July 10th, 2014, uh, and, uh, uh, which was not satisfactory in a lot of ways. In fact, we, we had a previous version of this uh, that, we, uh, that we were going to do for our first yoga book, but um, uh, it, it really wasn't satisfactory, and we had to redo it. We knew we had to redo it because we were we were really not on the mark in a lot of ways. So we finally, after all the after a couple of years of working on it, and it's taken a lot of work, as you will see from tonight's script. It's taken a lot of work to get this together, and and uh, I think we have finally solved the major the major riddles and the major hurdles. And so, uh, with that said, we'll get on into it. This is the chemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz, the key to Hermetic Rosicrucian yoga. And it is originally, it was by Johann Valentin Andrea in 1616. And it's the last of the establishing documents of the Renaissance Rosicrucians. And the most cryptic and mysterious of the three. Now, unlike the Fama Fraternitatis, 1614, and the Confessio, 1615, the chemical wedding is not a document or a statement. It is a symbolic, allegorical fiction, a fantasy novel, in the manner and style of the Hypno-Erato-Mancia of Francisco Colonia in 1499, and like the and like the hypnoerotomancia, though mercifully much shorter, the chemical wedding has been subject to extensive interpretive study and symbolic decipherment by scholars of the occult and students of the esoteric. Because of its position in the Rosicrucian corpus, various interpretations of the text have been put forward to serve various schools of Rosicrucianism. And to this process, we will also confess, or err on the side of humility, or to err on the side of humility, let us say, rather, that we offer our own contribution. 
Now, let me backtrack just a little bit here on the Hypno Aratamantia of Francisco Colonia. This is a remarkable book, and we did a show on this earlier, and you find it in the archives. Uh, and uh, it, it, uh, uh, it was the inspiration for a film called The Ninth Gate and a novel that, that was based on called The Club Dumas, which you may have, uh, which we've also discussed on the Hermetic Hour. Now, in order to present our Hermetic Rosicrucian yoga version of the chemical wedding in a form that the reader can easily grasp, we will first state the themes, symbols, and relationships we have discovered. And we will then summarize the entire work as it is, and using this summary as an outline, we will develop our argument as we progress in the text and in the end notes as we proceed through the seven days of the chemical wedding. Now, I'm going to try, maybe this may not be a good idea, we'll see how it works out, uh, because the, the end notes, the footnotes, are, are so important here uh, because of the scholarship involved and all that. I'm going to try, every time I run into a footnote, I'm going to try to go to the back of the, back of the, of the monograph and, and see if I can't uh, cite the footnotes for you. Um, now, Perhaps the most important clue that Andrea, the author, embedded in his texts was given in the narrative of the first day. Uh, this, the, uh, the, 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 the wedding, the wedding takes, uh, takes seven days uh, and is divided into seven days. Where Christian Rosencruz stated, although I recognized that this was the promised wedding about which I had been told in a bodily vision seven years before. The one I had awaited so long and with such yearning and carefully planned and calculated from my planetary tablets, I would never have expected it place under such difficult and dangerous conditions. Now this statement reveals the basic structure of the story. The seven days of the chemical wedding are the first seven houses of Christian Rosencruz's natal horoscope. Why seven and not twelve? There are twelve signs of the zodiac and twelve houses in the natal chart, both systems hearkening back to the mythical labors of Melkart and Hercules. But in Valentinian Andrea's time, the seventh house was called the house of marriage, and it still is, and thus it completed the allegory. So... If the seven days of the wedding are seven houses, which one comes first? Now, Rosencruz's eating of the Paschal lamb on the first day, on the first day of Easter, of course, uh, was as a marker indicating Aries as the natural ruler of the first house. Now, traditionally, this is the house of self, and the Paschal Lamb, in this case, serves to establish the houses as the days of the allegory, linking it to the name of Christian Rosencruz himself as representing the Paschal Lamb or the crucified Christ. Confirming this arrangement, the seventh day, the house of marriage, finds Christian Rosencruz, the house of marriage, finds Christian Rosencruz on a ship with the king and the queen, the bride and the bridegroom, flying a Libra flag. Uh, Libra, or Libra, rules the seventh house of marriage. 
as we all know, and critics of astrology remind us, the houses do not line up with the signs, and neither system lines up with the actual constellations. But as astrologers know and calculate, the signs and the planets of the houses are important. For example, it's good to have Jupiter, the planet of prosperity, in your second house, the house of prosperity, in uh, whatever system uh, you use to calculate house divisions. When Valentine Andrea wrote The Chemical Wedding, two house systems were invoked, that of uh, Reggio Montanus and Campansus. And neither of these were equal house systems. Christian Rosencruz was supposedly born in 1368, but we cannot assume that that date determines the house system used in Andrea's natal chart outline. It is more probable that he worked with one of the contemporary systems, and we have no idea which one of these Andrea would have used, nor do we have any notion of where to establish the fictional Rosencruz's nativity? Therefore, we must decline the task of re-engineering his fictitious natal chart, which we believe the author of the chemical wedding created and used as the symbolic outline for his allegory, whether or not he actually produced a mechanical chart to work from. Now, I, this may seem a little complicated to some of you, but believe me, this is important because nobody that I know of, and I've read a lot of commentaries on the chemical wedding, nobody that I know of has come up with this, not even Adam McLean has come up with the idea that that the uh, the days of the chemical wedding actually are the houses of, of Christian Rosencrantz's horoscope. So I think we really accomplished something there. Now, the Paschal Lamb marks the first house, the first day, as Aries which connects Christian Rosencruz with Jesus Christ, the Lamb, the sign, and therefore the house. And it's ruled by Mars, which indicates the dangers that Christian will face. And like his namesake overcame in the symbolic process of resurrection. Now the dream that Christian has of the tower, which represents the general human condition, involves Saturn and Mother Nature acting as God's agents in the process of spiritual advancement in keeping with Kabbalistic principles of Saturn's relation to nature. The second second day, or second house, uh, is the house of money and possessions, ruled by Taurus and Venus. And during this day, Christian moves through the forest on his way to the castle, and he loses or forfeits everything of value that he has. Now, the scales and the weighing ceremony in the third day, in the third house, the house of communications ruled by Mercury, might lead us to assume the rulership uh, to be of Libra. But Libra is the natural ruler of the seventh house, and in this case we must consider that the main emphasis of the third house is communication. And thus, Gemini and Mercury are appropriate. The fourth day, or the fourth house, is traditionally the house and home and the family, ruled by Cancer and the Moon. The events on the fourth day explain, and this is important, explain why the story is called the chemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz and not the chemical wedding by Christian Rosencruz. The story of the deaths and resurrections of the royal family are indeed an allegory of the life of Christ and of Christian Rosencruz, and both events described reflect their own trials, failures, and eventual enlightenment. The fifth house, the fifth day, 
When Rosencrantz enters the tomb of the sleeping Venus, is appropriately the house of creativity and sex, ruled by Leo and the sun, and the sixth house is in which Christian and his brothers are engaged in alchemical resurrection, and the chemical resurrection process is the traditional house of service and healing, ruled by Virgo and Mercury. And, of course, the seventh house is the house of marriage. So that's the whole structure of the story. Rosencruz's planetary aspects within the signs and or the houses of his horoscope and the nature of the houses themselves influence and describe the events of his adventure. Our hermetic extended middle pillar ascension is symbolized by the two towers, one dreamed in the second house and the other experienced, worked up, uh, worked upward through the levels of the Tower of Olympus in the sixth house, perhaps the most important symbolic element of the story, and the confirmation of our theory is that Rosencruz's invasion of the secret tomb of Venus in the fifth house the house of creativity and sex, where he finds the naked goddess awaiting resurrection to give birth to a king. This connects the chemical wedding and the hieros gamos described in Joseph and Asenath. And I got a note on this, and I'm going to go to it. And Joseph, now we discussed Joseph and Asenath in a previous uh, Hermetic Hour. This is the... Uh, uh, the Christian version of, of Joseph and Asenath from the Old Testament, which is actually an, an allegory of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. So we had a second footnote is, see the lost gospel of Joseph and Asenath, uh, second century Christian version. Also note that Mary Magdalene means Mary of the Tower, which it does. Rosencruz's planetary aspects within the signs and or houses of his horoscope and the nature of the houses themselves influence and describe the events of his adventure. Our hermetic extended middle pillar ascension uh, symbolized by, the two, by, the, by the, the two towers, one dreamed in the second house and the other experienced working upward through the levels of the Tower of Olympus in the sixth house, perhaps the most important symbolic element of the story, and the confirmation of our theory uh, is that Rosencruz's invasion of the secret tomb of Venus in the fifth house of creativity and sex where he finds a naked goddess resurrecting um, to give birth to a king. And this connects the chemical wedding with the Hieros Gallos described in Joseph and Asenath. And finally, Asenath's renunciation of her pagan gods replaced by angels can be inferred in the alchemical operations in the ascending chambers of the Tower of Olympus and reminds us of the ascent up the middle pillar to the mountains of darkness in Saturn and Aft. Now, we have been fortunate to have had two excellent recent versions of the chemical wedding, Jocelyn Godwin's with Adam McLean's commentary, Jocelyn Godwin's translation with Adam McLean's commentary in 1991, and more recently, John Crowley's 2016 rendition, along with a transcript of the earliest English translation, Rosicrucian manuscripts, with a commentary by Benedict Williamson in 2002. Now, perhaps one of the most important recent publications revealing Valentine Andreas' alchemical sources 
is the Codex Homunculi, compiled and edited by Joseph Vincello, uh, 2016. Now, this includes manuscripts by Paracelsus and his followers, which describe the procedures, the apparatuses, and results of the operations described in the chemical wedding. Uh, we did. We just recently did a show on the on the Codex Homunculi, and and this is an amazing book, and and uh, I I want to want to recommend it again, because you find that these these old treatises and these old treatises by Paracelsus and 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 by uh, and by his followers were obviously read by Valentine Andrea when he when he put together a chemical wedding. Now uh, the Splendor Solace. 1582, attributed to Paracelsus's mentor, Solomon Trismoisen, we also did a show on that, is obviously one of Andrea's sources. In the second treatise, Trismoisen writes, to things hot and cold, further to all colors, all fruits, all birds, and in short, all things between heaven and earth, and among all these things belonging to this art, the aforesaid operations, which are explained by philosophers in two words, man and wife, milk and cream. He who does not understand these does not understand the preparation of this art. And that's from Splendor Salas, page 24. And that certainly was one of, one of Andrea's sources. And we have also consulted... Arthur Edward Waite's The Brotherhood of the Rosy Cross, 1924, wherein Waite has summarized and commented on the chemical wedding. We might also mention that our crater Rapoa, six degree celestial terrestrial spherical vault, astronomical degree, is described on the third day and may be derived from the tomb of Christian Rosencruz described in the first Rosencruzian document, the Fama Fraternitatis, 1614, in which the celestial bodies and constellations are represented by symbols rather than by luminous jewels. Now, this celestial terrestrial globe in the chemical wedding may have influenced Dee and Kelly in creating an earth surface analog to their 38th celestial tablets the alchemical homunculi operation that ascends up through the floors of the Tower of Olympus on the sixth day obviously conforms with our celestial western extended middle pillar chakra arrangement and the Gnostic Gospel of Mary. And by the way, the Gnostic Gospel of Mary, which we'll be dealing with next week, uh, along with uh, Roscrucian Yoga, uh, the, gospel, the, the, the Gospel of Mary from the Nag Hammadi uh, collection is absolutely astounding. Another mystery of the chemical wedding that we will presume to solve is the confusing conclusion of the story. One or two pages of the original manuscript are missing. On the last day... In the story, old Christian has been told by the king that he will, because he peeked at the goddess Venus, he must become a portal guard at the castle until relieved by another peeping Tom, apparently peeking at Venus is, uh, in the nude, is not an uncommon Rosicrucian sin. However, 
Yeah. You know, you go to the castle and, and they say, hey, how would you like to get a peak of Venus? <laughs> Come on, I'll show you. However, we are told that upon awakening the next morning on the eighth day, he was allowed to return home. Tom Crowley makes a complex time loop out of this, but to us it seems like a simple repetition of the dream motif that the author has used throughout the story. And I submit that in this case, the whole story is in fact a dream, much like the film version of The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy clicks her heels and says, there's no place like home, and she's there. Okay, now that's those are the things that we discovered, and those are the uh, uh, those are the revelations. Not all of them, but that they're they're most of what we have discovered uh, in the course of, of of analyzing going through the story. So now let's uh, let's tell the story. And now that you know what the what to look for, we will we'll be on the lookout for it. Okay, on the first day we find old Christian Rosenkreutz in his mountain cottage, at his meditations, following the eating of his paschal lamb, which would indicate that this is the first day or the first house and begins in Aries, which is the natural ruler of the first house. And we should recall that in Christian theology, Jesus is considered to be the paschal lamb, sacrifice of the crucifixion. And thus the paschal lamb mentioned here not only symbolizes, marks the first astrological house, but the character of Christian Rosencrantz himself. A violent storm announces the arrival of a beautiful female angel who delivers an invitation to the wedding, and she's dressed in blue and blows a golden trumpet. And we may assume that this is Gabrielle, God's messenger. The invitation is cryptic and embossed with a sigil resembling John Dee's hieroglyphic monad. And it concludes with a warning. Take heed, observe yourself. If you are not clean enough, the wedding can work ill. Perjure here at your peril. He who is light, beware. Rosengrutz then contemplates the meaning of all of this, thinking, although I recognized that this was the promised wedding about which I had been told in a bodily vision seven years before, the one I had awaited so long and with such yearning and carefully planned and calculated from my planetary tables, interpretation of his natal chart, of course, I would never have expected it to take place under such difficult and dangerous conditions. He decides to leave on his journey the next morning praying to his holy guardian angel to assist him in the venture, he falls asleep and has a very prophetic dream. Scarcely had I fallen asleep when it seemed to me that I was lying in great dark, in a great dark tower with countless other people bound in heavy chains, and there was no light, and we were crawling over each other like bees, thus increasing each other's suffering. Trumpets sound and drums roll, and the top of the tower opens, and a gray-haired old man, obviously Saturn, accompanied by an old woman, Mother Nature, also Saturnian in this case, Saturn being the beginning of the physical universe, and they look down on the swarming horde of humans below, and Saturn calls for silence, and then delivers a lecture in the form of a poem, 
which begins with, if it would not struggle so, the wretched human race, many a good would come to it from my mother's store. And he concludes with, to make her mercy known, a good work she will do. The rope will now come down, and whoever can hang on, the same shall be set free. And at the command of Mother Nature, the rope comes down seven times. And after several tries, Rosencruz is finally hauled up on the seventh hoisting. Saturn delivers another poetic lecture. And the lid is put back on the trap door at the top of the tower. And old Mother Nature hears the wailing of those within and says, Ah, how I sorrow for the poor people in the tower would give, would God that I could free them all. To which Saturn answers hermetically, Mother, it is ordered thus by God, and we must strive not against it. What if we were all lords and possessed all the goods of the earth and were sitting at table? Who would bring us our food? After this, Christian Rosencruz and the other survivors are given a gold medal with the sign of the rising sun. Trumpets sounded, and Rosencruz awoke from his dream and prepared to set out on his quest. Undaunted, he packs a lunch, sticks four roses in his hat band, and sets out to join the wedding party. Now, so ends the first day. In analysis, we see that the natural ruler of the first house, uh, Aries, symbolized by the pastoral lamb, serves to establish the the astrological house as the chapters or days of the wedding. But the tower dream declares Saturn is the planet ruling the initial path in Rosencruz's adventure. Now, this is kind of a dichotomy because, of course, Saturn does rule the first path in the Tree of Life, as you know, but, uh, but Aries, of course, is the, is the natural ruler of the first house. Now, um, it is considered the planet of, of, of discipline, Saturn is, and, and, the struggle by, uh, and the struggle by astrologers. It's also the planet ruling the 32nd path, the Tree of Life, leading from Mount Kutiasai. In the tree before the fall, Saturn is located in Da'ab and is on the edge of the abyss. Now, our Saturn icon, see volume one in Hermetic Yoga, is similar to the dark tower depicted in the chemical wedding. Now, the next morning, Christian Rosencruz sets out on his journey. He enjoys communing with nature and composes a poem to a lark singing to the sun. He comes to a grove of cedar trees where the path branches into four directions. And there is a tablet on one of the trees that declares, the bridegroom offers you a, the choice of four paths, by all of which you may reach the royal castle, and if you do not fall by the wayside. Now, the first is short and perilous and will lead you through rocky places which you may scarcely escape. And the way, and this is, of course, the way of the mystic. And the second is longer and will lead you not downward, but round and round. It is flat 
and easy so long as you have a magnet, a compass. And uh, do not let yourself be diverted from right to left. The occult path of the serpent uh, on the tree. And the third is the royal way, which which will make your journey delightful with the various pleasures and spectacles. But hitherto, scarcely one in a thousand has achieved it. Perhaps this is all going to be. The fourth way, no man may come to the kingdom, for it is a consuming path and suited only to incorruptible bodies. Perhaps the path of Sheen, 31st path, or perhaps the path of the martyred saint. Rosencruz decides to have lunch before deciding on a path. He shares his bread with a friendly white dove. But the dove is attacked by a black raven, and Rosencruz chases off the raven. Without thinking, he enters one of the paths. Apparently, that is the serpent because he has a compass with him to keep him on course, and he sees the holy mountain ahead of him, perhaps Mount Abiegnos, and reaches the, the perverse portal, where he is met by a porter who asks him for his invitation. Now, he gives it to the porter, who is quite impressed. And the porter asks Rosencruz for a gift in exchange for a token. And the pilgrim exchanges his water flask for the gold token and the pass to the next portal. And the sun is setting as he proceeds toward the next gate. As darkness falls, a maiden begins lighting lanterns hanging from the fruit trees along the path. Rosencruz hurries along to the next gate where a chained lion guards the entrance. The second porter appears and restrains the lion, and he takes the pass and welcomes the pilgrim, and again asking for a gift in exchange for for a token. Rosencruz gives him salt in exchange for another golden medal. Bells begin ringing up at the castle, and he hurries along the ascending path, and he barely makes it through the castle door before it slams shut behind him. His name is recorded, and he is given a third token to the wedding itself. He must exchange his shoes for a new pair, and he has his hair cut by invisible barbers. He then proceeds to the banquet hall and takes his seat with a crowd of wealthy and successful people, many of whom he recognizes, emperors, kings, lords, and gentlemen, none of whom he likes or respects particularly. He feels foolish and out of place in their company. Now recall that the second house is the house of possessions and personal success. Taurus is the natural ruler. The banquet confirms his first impressions and his fellow guests Once they start drinking wine, everyone begins to brag about his or her accomplishments and worthiness. Some of the guests are obviously swindlers, and some even claim to be spiritually enlightened, even though Rosencruz knows they are charlatans. He concedes that most of them had to climb over the rocks to reach the castle, which reveals that uh, that the author is not particularly... Calvinistic or sympathetic to a Masonic work ethic. But he does mention that some guests, like like himself, were modest 
and unpretentious in their discourse. However, there is one more test the guests will have to pass that will separate the worthy from the unworthy. That is the weighing on the scales. Trumpets and drums announce the entrance of the virgin, a white-robed beauty, the moon goddess, obviously, enthroned in a sedan chair borne by invisible servants with stars sparkling above their heads, Pleiades perhaps. The virgin delivers a speech in the form of a poem in which she reminds the guests of the coming weighing test. Tomorrow, every one of you upon the balance will be weighed. Whoever is too light reveals what he would fain forget. Any who in this multitude does not possess self-confidence will slip off quickly on the side, for if his welcome he outstays, all grace and favor he will lose, and tomorrow he will be on his way. Most of the guests leave the hall to retire for the night, but nine, including Rosencruz, remain and agree to spend the night in darkness bound to their seats with cords. Nine is the number of your sword, and bondage and solitude is an initiatory ordeal. Now, Rosencruz has another dream, foreshadowing the weighing in, and which he sees a multitude of people suspended from heaven by cords attached to the tops of their heads. An old man with shears flies through the dangling crowd, cutting cords and letting people drop. So ends the second day, and the second house ruled by Taurus. Christian Rosencruz is left to contemplate the coming judgment of his material life. The third day, the third house, that of communication, thought, and expression is a sphere of awe and of alchemy. And in the morning, the virgin again enters the hall, and this time in a red robe and a green laurel wreath headdress, accompanied by 200 men-at-arms, also in red livery, very Martian symbolism, although Mercury is the planet of influence. In this case, her crimson attire perhaps represents the fires of calcination. She has the nine penitents, including Rosencruz, released, telling them that they may fare better with the weighing than those who were too sure of their worthiness. And this turns out to be the case and as they all line up for judgment on the scales. Most of the monarchs and the nobles fail the test, but are pardoned and released to leave the castle. The swindlers and the charlatans are all condemned to varying degrees of death, and we can assume that the author was being politically correct for his time, whereas had he been written 150 years later, he might have reversed his verdict and slaughtered the ruling class. For in the Age of Enlightenment, even some Rosicrucians turned against the nobility. And I have a footnote on that for, you know, about, uh, about uh, uh, Baron, Baron Tingy, the Rosicrucian, uh, disowning out of my sense of Illuminati because the Illuminati were very, very anti, anti-nobility. In any case, those who failed the weighing test escaped execution and were allowed to drink a potion of forgetfulness 
the mythical waters of Lathe, and then return to their mundane lives. Having survived the tests, Rosenkrust is given a tour of the castle. Here is where the haughty and mercurial alchemical symbolism of the day and the house becomes, becomes obvious. Much of this same symbolism is also found in our 31st Malkuth Tiasod pathworking and in our Kabbalistic allegory Adams's quest. And he is uh, confronted with, uh, with lions, doves, unicorns, and finally a phoenix. He visits the great library of forbidden knowledge where he discovers, and this is very important, where he discovers the great celestial terrestrial globe, which he enters and beholds the stars marking even his own home on the surface of the earth. This revolving 30-foot diameter world globe is sunk to the equator level in the floor, and it is in fact a vault that can be entered. The outer surface shows the features of the physical world with the homes of Christian Rosenkreutz and the other adepts visiting the castle illuminated from the stars on the celestial vault inside the globe. There is a door in the Pacific Ocean side with the inscription over the lintel, similar to that over the entrance of the tomb described in the first Rosicrucian document, the Fama Fraternitatis, upon which the Golden Dawn's RRNAC vault is, is based. Now this celestial terrestrial configuration tends to validate our reconstruction of Marcus's second century Soma Sophia celestial entablature and its application to the terrestrial sphere, which we suggest may have been the origin of Dean Kelly's terrestrial victory scheme. And I'm referring you to our seventh ray, book three, uh, the green ray on this, the Soma Sophia. If the tomb described in the Fama Fraternitatis inspired the Golden Dawn's inner order vault, then we might say that the celestial terrestrial hollow globe of the chemical wedding inspired our inner order cyclorama vault of the crater of Poa's Chistophorus fourth degree. At the end of the third day, Rosenkreutz again, oh, by the way, one thing I want to mention about this, um, this business of uh, reflecting the, uh, the constellations on the ground, I just got, I have a footnote on this, I just uh, received from the Scottish Rite Research Association Rick, Rex Hutchins' revised version of the writings of Albert Pike, of the, the Pillars of Wisdom. And in there, he recounts that the constellation Virgo was projected on, on the countryside of France back during the Middle Ages. And everywhere one of the stars in Virgo was projected downward, the French built a cathedral in honor of the Virgin Mary, the goddess. And that, of course, is pretty much a validation of well, Dean Kelly's terrestrial victory and also our Soma Sophia. Okay, now, uh, at the end of the third day, Rosencruz again goes to sleep and dreams. Now, this time of a door which he cannot open. And, of course, uh, I have a footnote on that, referring to 
to Omar's verse, which we have quoted several times. There's, Up from Earth's center I rose, and upon the throne of Saturn sat. And many knots unraveled by the road, but not the master knot of human death and fate. Here was the door to which I found no key. Here was the veil past which I could not see. And that's the Fitzgerald translation of Omar Khayyam from the 12th century. The fourth day, the fourth house, that of home and heritage ruled by cancer, the sphere of the emotions and family life, in the text of the chemical wedding, this fourth day or house of cancer may actually extend into the morning of the fifth day, the fifth house of Tifereth ruled by Leo, as the events described will suggest. The tomb of Venus should be in the fourth house, but the opening of her tomb by the solar spirit of Christian Rosencruz is an act of sexual creativity characteristic of the fifth house or the fifth day. And also in, in our in, in Hermetic Yoga, we 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 want to in, in replicating the the uh, chemical wedding. We want to be, bring Venus up from Metsoc to to uh, to Pareth, uh, and, and so that follows. Uh, going across the cusp and, uh, and into uh, in, into Tipperet. We can assume that the house divisions in the author's model chart might overlap the appropriate signs in this instance. Now, Rosenkreutz oversleeps on the morning of the fourth day, and he comes down uh, down to the outdoor fountain where he finds the group and the virgin, and the fountain is a magical version of Hermes Trismegistus Crater from, from the, the commander. There is an inscription which reads, After so many injuries done to, human, done to the human race in God's counsel, and by the aid of art, here I flow, made a healing medicine, Drink from me, who can? Wash, who wishes? Stir, who dares? Drink, brethren, and live. And of course, this is inspired by the Crater baptism in the Pomander. But it also reminds us of Omar Khayyam's lines. You who man of baser earth didst make, and even with paradise devised the snake, of all the sin wherewith the face of man is blackened, man's forgiveness give and take. Now, after partaking, each guest is given a golden fleece, and then... They are led into a tower with a spiral staircase of 365 steps leading to a royal chamber at the top where they found the king and the queen enthroned along with the bride and bridegroom and all the virgin's maidens and a little winged cherub, Eros, or Cupid, flew about the chamber uh, causing mischief. 
Before the throne, there was an altar, which was a black book, a striking clock, a revolving crystal armillary sphere, and a skull with a long white snake crawling through its eye sockets. Next to the altar stood a small crystal fountain, out of which a blood-red liquid constantly ran. And after a short ceremony at the altar, the guests were led back down the stairs to the hall where the virgin attached herself to Rosencruz. And the other nine male guests, each paired with a maiden. And the virgin flirtatiously suggested sleeping with our pilgrim and arranging a dance of two circles one circle inside and one circle surrounding it, and the circles would revolve in a, in a, with a drum beat until ordered to stop, and at which point the persons opposite each other would be paired up as bedmates for the night. Now this had the male guests, including old Rosengrich, quite excited until the virgin arranged the circles so that the maidens and the men ended up facing each other. Now, if the virgin's joke is overlooked, we might suspect that this was the inspiration for a similar ritual depicted in the recent film, Eyes Wide Shut. It also may owe something to the temptation test in Crowder Report. It is certainly an erotic motif and serves as a prelude to the opening of the Venus tomb the next morning. Following the dance episode, the guests are invited to attend a play, a melodrama in seven acts, which becomes an allegory within an allegory, which relates uh, to the goddess Astarte, Venus, and perhaps to the life of the priestess Mary Magdalene, to briefly summarize this little play. The play opens with an old king receiving a chest found floating on water containing a baby girl princess in the last of her dynasty, and from a neighbor, neighboring kingdom which has been conquered by a villainous moor. Uh, profile, we're profiling Muslims here. The old king raises the princess, uh, intending to eventually wed her to his son. Now the moor learns of this and abducts the princess. The old king mounts an expedition, freeing the princess from bondage, and placing her on the throne of her kingdom in preparation for marriage to his son. However, the Moor seduces her and regains control of her country, making her his concubine. And the young prince, intended the, her intended bridegroom, wants to invade the realm and rescue her again, but his father only attempts to negotiate. And she admits her relationship with the Moor and rejects her her engagement to the prince. Now the Moor finally reveals his evil nature and has her stripped, whipped, imprisoned, and finally poisoned. Learning of this, the young prince raises an army and rides to her rescue. And he and the Moor do battle, and both are are apparently slain. But the prince recovers and again rescues uh, the wayward princess, who now agrees to marry him. However, until the wedding 
He leaves her in the care of a priest who tortures her almost as severely as had the Moor so that she has to be rescued again. And they are finally wed and presumably live happily ever after. In his commentary on the play, Alan McLean suggests that the essential meaning of the drama is the female's final escape from patriarchal domination and manipulation and the male's acceptance of her as his equal partner in home, ownership, and family, leadership, and marriage, all of which is very Valentinian, of course. We can certainly agree with this, but we can also add that the play bears a striking resemblance to the early Christian allegory, Joseph and Asenet, which uh, we discussed in our previous chapter. And and the esoteric uh, renunciation of the once divided soul through marriage, which Jesus supported. Now recall that Jesus objected to the ease with which a Hebrew man could divorce his wife, uh, citing Eloah's Genesis uh, 2.24, he said, Wherefore, what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder, Matthew 19. And thus, defending the equal rights of the husband and the wife and the influence of the lowest dual nature of divinity. Now, even if this were not the case, the similarity of the drama's uh, princess to Mary Magdalene is quite obvious. And we need only to add that the belief in the Magdalene as the secret life of Jesus was current when the chemical wedding was written. And we are only now rediscovering what was common speculation in earlier times. That's very important, by the way. This whole idea uh, that that Dan Brown and, and others have, have rekindled here about Mary Magdalene being the wife of Jesus. This was this was this is not a new idea at all. This has been, been around for a long, long time. Following the play, the guests and the maidens were allowed to attend uh, a royal dinner in the upper chamber. Now, this sad dinner in which all present seemed, uh, seemed to anticipate a coming doom. The young king shares his food with, with the snake that crawls through the skull on the altar. And after the meal, the chamber is draped in black velvet. And a black man with an axe enters and proceeds to decapitate the six royals. Their blood is collected in a great chalice. The virgin enters with her maidens, bearing coffins uh, for, the, for the bodies. The horrified guests are dismissed to their chambers and told to retire. Rosenkreutz's bedchamber overlooks a large lake. He sh- shares the chamber with a page assigned to him. At midnight, they see seven ships sailing toward shore beneath their window. There are flames floating above the ships. Rosenkreutz seems to know that these flames are the spirits of the slain royals. His His suspicion is confirmed when he sees that the Virgin is leading a procession bearing the coffins down to the beach. And having witnessed this, Rosenkreutz goes to sleep and is spared from dreaming until the morning of the fifth day. On the morning of the fifth day, the fifth house, the house of creativity and sex, whose natural ruler is Leo, 
the first labor of Hercules and a solar influence. And on this particular morning, the pilgrim rises early before the rest of the castle and asks his page to show him something unusual. And the page takes him down a flight of stairs to a great iron door, upon which are copper letters which read, Here lies buried Venus, the fair woman who has undone many a great man of fortune, honor, blessing, and prosperity. Beyond the iron door, they come to another door, which has been left unlocked. And the page informs Christian that he should thank his planet, because he is about to see something very few men except the royal family had ever gazed upon. At this point, the narrative is confusing. They enter the treasury, and in the midst of which is a triangular tomb, which has a copper vessel in its center. In the vessel stands the statue of an angel holding a tree with various fruits on its branches, the Kabbalistic tree of life, perhaps. The fruits are continually falling down into the vessel and turning to liquid, and the basin is supported on the triangle by three beasts, an eagle, an ox, and the lion, water, earth, and air. Again, there is a plaque that reads, Here lies buried Venus, the fair woman who has undone many a great man in fortune, honor, blessing, and prosperity. The symbolic description may be influenced by the illustration, plate three, from the second treatise of Splendor Solace, which perhaps represents Mars guarding the reproductive process. After asking Rosencruz if he wishes to continue, the page opens another door in the floor, and they descend into a subcellar beneath the tomb where they find the body of the sleeping Venus lying on a curtained bed. The page draws back the curtains, and the pilgrim is awed by the sight of the naked goddess. And above her bed is another plaque that reads, When the fruit of my tree is completely melted, I shall awake and become the mother of a king. Now this may be the first of many stories about the sleeping princess, Snow White, for example. It is perhaps the most important symbolic clue to the meaning of the chemical wedding. And it certainly relates Venus to the bride and to Mary Magdalene. And on the fifth day, Christian Rosencruz, acting with his planet, the sun in the fifth house, has seen the bride before the wedding and will eventually suffer the consequences. As a presage of his disappointment, Christian and the page are discovered on the way out of the treasury by Venus's son, Cupid, Eros, who suspects that they have invaded his mother's tomb. They believe they have deceived little Eros, but he pricks Christian's hand with the point of his arrow, even so. And by this time, the rest of the guests have risen, and Christian Rosencruz joins the wedding party. Now, this may be the cusp of the fourth and fifth house. Cupid examines his wounded hand and sees a drop of blood and declares that Rosencruz will soon be growing old. 
The virgin appears dressed in black velvet and leads all the guests in a procession bearing six coffins out into the garden and into a gazebo in which are six graves into which the coffins are interred. Rosenkreutz knows that this is a trick because he saw the coffins containing the decapitated bodies of the royals loaded onto the ships in the lake and before dawn in the morning. In the gazebo, the virgin delivers a funeral oration over the graves. She then asks the guests to accompany her to the Olympus Tower, where they will prepare the alchemical medicines, which will help in rejuvenating the royal court. And she leads them down to the lake shore, and they board the same seven ships that had transported the original coffins. And after crossing the lake, the convoy ventures through the channel into the open sea, where they encounter a school of nymphs, Undines, I suspect, who entertain them with a siren song in chorus, singing the praises of love in honor of the king and queen. And this song makes it quite obvious that the fifth day represents the fifth astrological house. The convoy of boats, small ships, soon comes in sight of the Olympus Tower, which rises on a square island surrounded by a wall or a rampart with a flight of steps leading up to the water's edge. The warder of the tower comes out to meet them in a golden boat and welcomes them to the tower. They climb 260 steps to the base of the tower, which is surrounded by gardens and fruit trees that Rosencruz has never seen before. The tower seems to be created from the seven towers uh, bound together in a cluster with the central tube extending higher than the rest. They are all connected inside in seven levels or stories. The four Christian uh, and the wedding guests are admitted to the tower. They are detained while the coffins that have been brought to the island on the previous night are brought in, after which the wedding guests are conducted to a laboratory in the floor where they are put to work washing herbs and grinding gemstones to obtain their essences and decant them into bottles to be used in the alchemical rejuvenation of the royals. While the guests are so engaged, three of the virgin's handmaidens are at work in an adjoining chamber washing the headless corpses. And after the day's work, they all sup on soup and wine. And after supper, Christian goes out into the garden to watch the moon rise and observe a rare planetary alignment that had not, that had not been seen in years. And while out over the water, he sees the seven flames that had accompanied the first flotilla which had borne the coffins to the island, and the flames rise up to the top of the tower, representing heads or planetary souls. And so ends the fifth day. And the next morning, the guests 
were told that they must each select either wings, ropes, or ladders to assist them in ascending or climbing up the levels of the tower, and that they must carry their disequipment with them for the remainder of the day. And first they are told that each can choose his own device, but then the old man who is in charge decides to have them draw lots for the rope swings and ladders. And Christian Rosencruz drew a ticket marked ladder. And those with wings seem to be the most fortunate, for the old man fixed them on their shoulders as if they had grown there. Whereas Christian's ladder was 12 feet long and rather clumsy. After this, the old man collected all the bottles and herbs the guests had prepared, put them in a chest, and took them out of the room, locking the door behind them so that the guests were imprisoned in the lower chamber. And yet, a short time later, an opening appeared in the ceiling, and they saw the virgin looking down at them from above. And she gave them a friendly greeting and invited them all to come up. And the guests with the wings were the first... Uh, first up, followed by those with the ladders, but those with the ropes had to pull themselves up hand over hand. And this sequence seemed to be a repeat of the tower dream for the first day. The second floor was divided into six chambers on three levels uh, or landings. And the guests were positioned on these landings and instructed to pray for the king and the queen. And 12 musicians entered the chamber bearing large contraption, feared to be a still. Rosenkreutz assumed that the corpses of the royals were inside the distillation chamber. The musicians went out to fetch their instruments and returned to accompany the virgin and her white-veiled maidens in the concert. The virgin opened a small chest in which was a round object wrapped in green silk. And she laid this uh, in the upper chamber of the still and covered it with a perforated lid uh, with a rim on which she poured some of the fluids we had prepared on the previous day. Now, by the way, on these fluids, these are planetary elixirs. And, uh, you know, you can, you, can find, you can find these planetary elixir formulas in any good book on alchemy. The still immediately began to flow the liquid running back into the little vessel through uh, four, four tubes. And under the lower vessel were many spikes on which the maidens hung their lamps so that the heat came into the vessel and made it simmer. And when the water boiled, there were many small holes through which it could fall on the corpses. And it was not, and it was so hot that it dissolved the bodies and turned them into liquid. My companions did not yet know what the round wrapped up thing was, but I understood that it was the moor's head from which the water took on such extreme heat. Around the large vessel, there were many holes in which the branches were, in which branches were stuck. And through it, I did not know whether this was necessary or just a ritual. However, these branches were continually sprinkled by the still, and the drips that nurtured from them into the vessel were somewhat more yellow. And the, the still 
had been running of its own accord, but more freely the longer it went. And in the meantime, the musicians broke ranks and walked about the room, which was so set up that we had ample means of passing the time, and nothing had been omitted in the way of images, paintings, clocks, organs, running fountains and the like, and the last it came to the point at which the still would run no longer, whereupon the virgin had a round golden sphere brought in. At the bottom of the still was a top through which she let all the matter that had been dissolved by these hot drops run into the sphere, a portion of which was very red, and the other water remained above in the vessel and was poured out. And then the still, which had now become much lighter, was taken out again. And I myself cannot say whether or not it was opened outside or whether anything of value remained of the corpses. But I do, I do know that the water that was collected in the sphere was much heavier, for it took six or more of us to carry it through its size. It should not have been as heavy. Uh, it should not have been too heavy for one. Now, after this sphere had with difficulty been taken out through the door, we were left sitting there alone. But when I heard a coming and going above us, I had an eye to my to my ladder, and one would have heard my companions give strange opinions about this. But since they could not imagine the corpses to be anywhere but in the castle garden, they could not evaluate the process. But I thanked God that I had awakened at such an opportune time and seen that which helped me better understand everything the Virgin did. They're obviously dissolving the um, dissolving the the bodies, the decapitated bodies in this. Uh, in this uh, distillation unit. After a quarter of an hour, the cover above us was opened and we were commanded to come up, which we did did, uh, before with wings, ladders, and ropes. And it annoyed me somewhat that the maidens must have gone up by another way and while we had to work so hard, but I realized that there was something special about it and also that we had to leave the old gentleman something to do. And even uh, even those with the wings had, had the advantage, except that they uh, came to pass through the opening. Uh, when, we, we had, when we had got up, up there and uh, the aperture had been closed, and I saw the sphere in the middle of the room, hanging by a strong chain, Mm, There was nothing in this room but plain windows and between each one of them a door, which concealed nothing but a great polished mirror. Now, these windows and mirrors were placed opposite each other for optical effect, such as that when the sun was shining more brightly than usual and met just one of the doors. So what we have here, although he seems to be Little had a little problem describing it, but but we have we have mirrors and windows all around the tower, and 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 they're all reflecting all these lights 
from the mirrors and the windows and the sun outside are all reflecting on this golden sphere that's hanging down uh, from the ceiling. But the sun was visible throughout the whole room, so long as the window facing the sun was open, and the doors in front of the mirrors likewise, and through artificial uh, reflection, they all shone onto the golden sphere which hung in the center, and since this, too, was highly polished, it gave off such a blaze that none of us could keep his eyes upon it. And we had to look out of the windows until the sphere was well heated and the desired effect was achieved. And here I must say that in this mirroring, I beheld the most wonderful thing I, nature had ever brought to light. For ever, everywhere there, was, there were suns, and all the sphere in the center shone even brighter. And so, like the sun, we could not bear to look at it for a moment. And at last the Virgin commanded the mirrors to be closed again and the windows shut and the sphere could cool off a little. And this occurred toward about 7 o'clock. And we thought this was good since we could now have a vacation and refresh ourselves with a little breakfast. But this, co this coalition was ex uh, extremely philosophical and we had no need to worry about impertinence, yet uh, we were not starved. The hope of coming joy with which hope of coming joy with which the Virgin continually comforted us made us happy that we gave no heed to the labor and inconvenience. And I can also say this truly of my illustrious companions, that they never thought of kitchen or table, but their pleasure was only in the pursuit of such adventurous physics. And the contemplation therein of the Creator's wisdom and omnipotence. After we had taken our meal, we sat down to work again, for the sphere had sufficiently cooled. With the great trouble uh, with great trouble, we had to lift it off the chain and on the floor. And now came the debate over how we were to divide it, because our instructions were to cut it apart in the middle. A sharp diamond turned out to be the best, the best in that, in that respect. And when we opened it, opened the sphere, there was nothing red inside it but a beautiful, large, snow-white egg. It pleased us immensely that it had turned out so well for the virgin uh, was, who was always worrying that the shell might still be too fragile. We stood around the egg as, uh, with as much joy as if we had laid it ourselves. But the virgin soon had it removed, disappeared herself, and, and, as always, locked the door. Now, I do not know whether she did something out there with the egg or whether something clandestine was done with it, but I do not believe so. We, however, had to wait a quarter of an hour until the, trap, the third trap door was opened, 
and we came uh, by means of our apparatus to the fourth story or floor. And in this chamber, we found a great copper vessel filled with yellow sand warmed by a gentle fire in which the egg was buried so as to come to full maturity, and this vessel was square, and on the side were two verses written in large letters. Oh, cease not praying, my beloved, for it pleases you to pray for gold. And on the other side were these three words. Help, snow, lance, healing requires the lance. The third side had only one word, fiat, so be it. But on the inner side, most part, ran this inscription. O dignus heri aqua teria, sanctius regnum et, eriperi non portuant. What fire, air, water could not rob from the holy ashes of our kings and queens, the faithful flock of alchemists has gathered in this urn. Anno Domini, 1459. Leave it for the learned to argue about whether the sand or the egg was meant by this. I do not, in my part, leave anything unsaid. Now our egg was ready, and it was taken out, and needed no cracking, for the bird inside soon extracted itself and appeared quite happy, although it looked very bloody and unformed. We placed it first on the warm sand, and the virgin said that before anything was given it to eat, we should tie it up because otherwise it would give us a lot of trouble. And this was done, and then the food was brought to it, which was surely none other than the blood of the beheaded people diluted and prepared with water. The bird grew so fast beneath our very eyes that we could understand why the virgin had warned us about it. It bit and scratched about itself so fiercely that anyone who had fallen into its clutches would soon have been done away with. And now it was quite black and wild, and so another food was brought for it, perhaps this, the, the, the blood of the other royal persons. Where upon all of the black feathers fell out again, and in their place grew snow-white plumage. And then it became somewhat tamer and easier to deal with, though we still did not trust it. And the third meal, its feathers began to become colored and so beautiful that all my, in all my life I have never seen colors to compare. By now the bird was extremely docile, and it was so friendly towards us that the virgin, uh, that with the virgin's consent, we let it out of captivity. Let me stop here for a moment and, and, and discuss uh, footnotes. Uh, this whole bird, all of this bird symbolism, is derived from Arabic treatises, which you will find in in the Codex Homunculi. They're old Arab treatises that that uh, the Paracelsians uh, had access to. Also, too, I might mention that. Uh, that Paracelsus, as an experiment, said that you could, if you wanted to, you could put a chicken's egg in your armpit and you could hatch it yourself. <laughs> now she began, since through your hard work and your old and our old gentleman's permission, 
The bird has been endowed with life and great perfection. It is proper for us to give it a joyful consecration. Therefore, she ordered lunch to be brought in and to us and relax, since now the most demanding work was over. And it was fitting for us to enjoy our past labors. And we began to be merry together, uh, though we still had on our morning clothes, and it, and it which seemed to make a mockery of our joy. Now the Virgin uh, kept asking questions, perhaps to find out which of us would be best served by her forthcoming scheme, the scheming Virgin. Next week, we'll finish up the chemical wedding, and, uh, and until then, um, um, I hope you've enjoyed it so far. And I, I recommend that those of you who want to look it up, uh, Adam McLean's uh, 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 commentary and, and Jocelyn Godwin's translation, the Fanny's Press one, is the one that I we primarily work from, and that, that would be good. So uh, check that out, and uh, we'll see you next week, and we'll finish up. Yeah, until then, good magic.